not quite as much recently. It's good to be back and to worship again with you here at Strasburg. So what is today? Independence Day. What does that stand for? What are, you, what are we independent from? <laughs> well, the truth of it is the King of England, right? So, how should we respond to that? Our spiritual forebears faced some real dilemmas. After all, the powers that be in England had made it possible for many of our ancestors to come here and supported the voyage of coming. My ancestors on the Wanger side uh, came here because the King of England had uh, a friendship with William Penn and they worked out a deal and they took a shipload or two of people from uh, Switzerland and Germany. So in 1727, on the ship Molly, Christian Wanger showed up. There was a Barbara Hoover who was also on the ship. They were single. They set their foot on American soul, married, and started a family. And uh, that's my ancestors on the Wanger side. The Roars came from Roar Valley, Germany. It's probably about the same time. So our Anabaptist forebears faced a dilemma. They had appreciation for the for the government of England and these revolutionaries started to resist and they were caught in the middle and eventually there was a revolutionary war and of course eventually England was defeated and the Declaration of Independence was drawn up and signed and now we have the 4th of July but when we really stop and think it through the 4th of July is uh, it is a celebration of military conquest. It's a celebration of independence. And in essence, it's a celebration of telling the King of England so long. So how do we respond to all of that? I've titled this evening's message, Called to be Part of a Great Nation. And it's interesting. I'm at our home congregation at the bank. I'm currently preaching through the book of Genesis. And we were ready for the Tower of Babel and the call of Abraham today. So it fit in well. So you probably know where this title is coming from. The first time that we find the word nation used in the scripture is in Genesis chapter 12, where God called Abraham and said, I will call thee out and make of thee a great nation. But before we jump into that, I'd like for us to think a bit, and I have a lot of material here, so we'll kind of fly over quickly some of this stuff. Uh, this morning we looked at the Tower of Babel first, and then we looked at Abraham, or the call of Abram in his life. And I find it interesting that following the flood and the people began to move out from the east into other areas um, and to build and to uh, propagate, have families, and they were all of one language in chapter 11 of Genesis. And it came to pass as they sojourned, chapter 11, verse 2, from the east they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. So here is humanity beginning to increase and they went to this place called uh, 
Shinar, which I believe would be the area that became Babylon uh, eventually. And we find it interesting, Babylon is symbolic with those people who oppose God. It's always been a battle between Babylon and the people of God. And finally, in the book of Revelation, Babylon has fallen to rise no more. So that battle continues on uh, symbolically and spiritually. But here, where Babylon was eventually built, the people said, we're going to make a tower. Its top's going to reach into heaven. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. Lest we be scattered. They obviously had a fear of being scattered for some reason. And then it said, the Lord came down to see the city. I feel like he was there watching the whole time, but the way it's written, it sounded like he was just passing through one day and observed what they were doing. But I'm sure he knew the whole time. And God said, this is not good. They all have one language, and they begin to do this thing. Nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. That is disconcerting in a way. It's also encouraging in a way. I find it disconcerting that, that God looks at it and says, in wickedness, if people set themselves together and are unified in something, they're probably going to be hard to stop. I find it encouraging in the fact that when we're unified in the Word of God and in the Lord, we could also be a force that would have to be reckoned with in this earth. So I, I see this as a challenge to unity and to working together. When God looked and said, these men whose hearts are set on making a name for themselves need to be dealt with, uh, how much more power can we have when we work with God's blessing in a unified way? And he confounded their language, and they split up and went out from there. God said, I will not allow this to happen. And he went on. And I thought about that. So God split up all these people. They moved out from there. And we look around us in the world, and we see all the tension here and the right and the left and this nation against that nation. But I believe when we back up and look at it from 30,000 feet or so to speak, that might not all be bad. Because this, this group is pulling this away and this group is pulling this away. Had they be all united in one mind against God rather than all pulling against each other, maybe it helps keep some stability and some balance in society that God has dispersed people and they have different perspectives and different goals to move for. And that's really not our subject tonight, but I'll move on from there. But I find it interesting that when man set out to make a name for himself, God said no. And then following that, we have verses 10 through 20-something is genealogy. And just for interest's sake, I did this. I sat down with a calculator and figured this man lived this many years, and he had a son, he lived this many years, and this many years, just to kind of get an idea of what the time frame was moving through. And this could be off, but this is what I came up with. The years that elapsed between Noah and his sons coming out of the ark until the birth of Abraham should have been somewhere around 292 years. It's not as, as much of a gap there as you might think. Abram was born approximately 58 years before Noah died. So if Abram attended his great-great-great-great-grandfather's funeral, he would have been 58 when he traveled down to Noah's funeral. From the flood to God's call in Abram's life then was 370-some years and 390-some years to the birth of Isaac. So to put that into perspective, the first uh, lasting colony established here in the United States was Jamestown. It was established in 1607. So we take 1607 plus uh, 
376 years, that means that Abram would have been called to follow God in 1974. <laughs> and Isaac would have been born. Uh, let me see here. Maybe I'm getting mixed up on this. Uh, 392. Yes, Isaac would have been born in 1999. And if the flood would have ended the year Jamestown was established, Isaac would be 21 years old today. So it just gives you a little idea of, of the time lapse that would seem to be correct from the genealogy that we see there. So the other side of that is, think about the progression that has happened in the years between the establishment of Jamestown and where we're at today. So these people may have been more advanced than what we may have get them credit for in 390-some years of, of humanity interacting together. And we don't know at what point and what time God came down and, and gave them, uh, you know, dispersed them through changing of their language. But I find it interesting that at the end of chapter 11, that Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur to the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, they came into Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. We'll never know this on this side of glory. But did that move come on the heels of the confusion of the language? We don't know. It possibly could have. For some reason, Terah decided to take Abram and Lot and their wives and to move even before God spoke into Abram's life in chapter 12 and called him to move further and go on. So that brings us up to, to chapter 12 and uh, this evening's account. Verse 1, chapter 12. And the Lord said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into the land I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and thy name, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse him that curseth thee. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as Lot as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance, and they had gathered and the souls they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth into the land of Canaan, to the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land into the place of Shechem, and to the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed I will give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence into a mountain to the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Hael on the east, and there he built an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. So we see God coming down and speaking into the life of a man named Abram. He was a man that God recognized would obey him, would follow his directive, and he called him out and made to him a very significant promise. He said, if you come out of the country you're in, from thy kindred, from my father's house, and go into land I will show you, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. So let's compare chapter 12, verse 2, to chapter 11, verse 4. They said, let us go and build a city. Let us make us a name. And God said, no. So when man aspired to make a great name for himself, 
mankind, God said no. The very next chapter, God comes and speaks into humanity and calls a man who will respond to him in faith and said, if you will come and follow me, I will make a great nation of you and I will establish your name. I will make a great name for you. And that's what we are called to be part of tonight. That great nation of followers, spiritual followers of Abraham. And we want to develop that and see what that looks like in our lives. We see God giving Abraham a call, but not the location of his destination. God called him to begin a journey, and he went. Hebrews 11 tells us this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should, should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, or whose architect and builder was God. So Abraham began a journey from a place that symbolizes resistance to God to a place that symbolizes rest in God, Canaan, the promised land. From a city to be destroyed by God to an eternal city whose architect and builder was God. So that was the call in Abraham's life, and that's what he, by faith, set out and began that journey. And as I already said in chapter 2, in chapter 12, verse 2, then we find the word a great nation. What is a nation? A nation is a, it's a place where a group of people inhabitant who have a common cause, common ancestry, common cultural, common beliefs, and, and they work together, uh, and that makes a nation. And the common cause of this great nation is Christ. His faith. Abraham was faith in a Savior that was to come, and we walk in that company by faith in a Savior that has come. Lived, died, resurrected, ascended, interceding for us. That is what we place our faith in. Abraham looked beyond what he was able to see and went out, claiming the promise by faith. I find it interesting that, well, I already said this. God said no in that one, and he said yes here. How then will Abram be a blessing to all people? Ishmael, Isaac, six sons of Keturah? Or what does that word seed mean? And we know it's reflecting back to the seed of a woman in Genesis at the beginning, and it's looking forward to Jesus Christ who would come. That is the seed of that we'll see explained then further in the New Testament. We notice in verse 4 that Abram was a man who obeyed God. I find it interesting in verse 4 that we find the word departed twice. So Abraham departed at the beginning, and it says he was 75 years, years old when he departed at the end of that verse. A man who began to live by faith. He went out not knowing where he was going, and he took with him everything that he had, verse 5. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth into the land of Canaan. To the land of Canaan they came. When Abram left Haran, he took with him everything. He left nothing back to draw his heart back 
from where he came. He took his wife, he took his substance, he took his nephew, everything they had, and they moved forward. Abraham's life now is identified by two traits, and I've already read these verses 6 through 8, where Abram passed through the land, he came into the plain of Morah, and we notice in verse 7 that he did something that was more permanent than anything else in his life. He built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So I noticed two things about Abraham's life after he responded to God's call. The first thing I notice is he becomes a sojourner. He becomes a traveling man, traveling by faith, not knowing where he was going, but walking hand in hand with God, so to speak, and going forwards in faith. And there's, there's so much symbolism in that between the call of God and our lives. When we become Christians, we place our hand in his and we begin to walk with him. We don't know where that journey will lead or where it will end or what we'll experience along the way. But we can place our faith in God knowing that he is leading us according to his perfect will. And we too become sojourners, so to speak, in our walk with God. The second thing I notice about Abram's life is he became a worshiper of God. It is believed that the people from Ur, where he would have started from, were worshipers of the, of the God of fire. I don't know what his ancestors would have worshipped, but probably they were idolatrous people. We don't know that. But God called Abram. Abram responded. He became a worshiper of God. In fact, when he was faithful to God, we won't get into that tonight, but there were some times he didn't build an altar, and that was the times he went down to Egypt or places like that and didn't exactly tell the whole story about who his wife was. If you study his life, they were the two times he didn't build an altar when he moved. But other than that, when Abram would move from one location to another, the scripture said he built an altar and he worshipped. So I like to think of Abram's life of being uh, identified by this. His dwelling was a tent made of skins of animals. His worship was an altar made of stone, which is much more permanent than a tent made of skins. So the most permanent thing in Abram's life was his worship to God. And that's a challenge to me that we need to follow. We come to verse 9, where he continued to journey. Now we'll leave Abram there for now, journeying through the land. And we'll begin to consider then how that his faith is meaningful to us and how that our faith has a connection to his. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore they that which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And I'll stop reading there. Summer Bible school and over the community children used to sing the song, uh, Many sons, many sons of Abraham. And that song seems kind of strange. But here we understand the meaning of it. We walk by faith. We're children of Abraham. Verse 8 of Galatians 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So this verse here in Galatians 3 Harkens back to Genesis 12 that in him all nations would be blessed. 
So they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. This is how all the nations of the earth are blessed through Abraham. We're blessed through him not because of attempting to identify blood relationship as genetic relationship as the Jews attempted to do when Jesus would would get a little close to the needs in their lives. They'd say, what well, we don't need you. We have Abraham as our father. And Jesus finally set that straight in John chapter 8. He said, you actually, you're your father, the devil. And if you was of Abraham, you'd have faith in me. And that kind of shut that one down a little bit. But they always wanted to claim that there was a connection to Abraham, so they didn't need faith in Christ. And what they didn't realize, they were missing the fact that Abraham's faithfulness was because of his faith in Christ. And without identifying with that, they really didn't have a saving connection to the life of Abraham. So we become children of Abraham as we place our faith in Jesus Christ and he becomes our Lord and our Savior. Now I'm going to move over to Romans, the fourth chapter, and read a a few verses uh, that continues to tie this all together for us. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. And this is talking about Abraham. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Therefore... It is of faith that we might be by grace to the end of the promise might be sure to all the seed, not that only which is of the law, but that also which is of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. So these verses just keep repeating to us the fact that Abraham is our father if we walk in faith. There's a connection. And that makes us part of that great nation who was called to follow God. Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again into fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So our identity, our family, our nation, so to speak, all comes from our connection to God in faith of Jesus Christ as Abraham had that faith that looked ahead. He looked beyond the present. And I like those verses in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 where it says, All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but have seen them afar off, were persuaded of them, and embraced them. How do you embrace something that's so far away you can't even see it? It's by faith. By faith alone that we embrace the reality of salvation. And we do that. So what then is our calling as we represent that great nation among the nations of this world where God chooses to plant us to serve him? 
Philippians chapter 2. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now that's the premise upon which we're going to build from. It is God which worketh in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. So it is of God. And it's verse 14 is kind of interesting. It throws in here and do all things without murmurings or disputings. And then it goes on to tell us how we ought to live. Verse 15, that ye may be blameless and harmless sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights. That description could fit any nation of this world where God may call us to reside and to serve and to live. A crooked and a perverse nation. Because even the best of human governments pales in comparison to the perfection of Christ. And that's one of the reasons we ought not to get involved in politics. <laughs> uh, we'll talk a bit about that a bit later. So we are called to be blameless, harmless sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights. Then what are we to do? Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Do you ever see the little symbol holding forth the word of life and a hand in a Bible on anything? Southeastern Conference documents? Yes. And the context is that we're to be shining as lights in a crooked and a perverse world, holding forth the word of life as the rule and guide for our lives and as the invitation for others to come in to be part of, become part of this great nation as well. Holding forth the word of life as we go into whatever nation God has called us to serve him in. So we get God working in his people. All this is of God. We see the mark of God's nation is one of peace and unity. The people of God's nation live above the pollution, the moral pollution of the nations of this world, and their lights are to shine in this way. So how do we shine? How do we allow our lights to shine in this world? Switch over here to some other notes from Winter Bible School in, in Maryland and Pennsylvania. My title up there was The Anabaptist View of Civil Government. But I'd like to pick up a bit from that tonight. How do we make application of the call of God in our lives to shine as lights in a dark and a perverse nation and a world around us? And how are we doing in that setting? I, don't, I forgot to bring it in with me, but the little Anabaptist vision book uh, where the critics wrote against them and they talked about all the things that these Anabaptists did and they said if you wouldn't know better, you would think they had the Spirit of God in them. Well, in reality, they did. <laughs> but the critics were saying, if you didn't know any better, you'd think these people were genuine. <laughs> they were genuine and they were living it out in everyday lives. So we come to 2021. What is God's plan for us today? Well, first of all, we notice in 2 Timothy that a good soldier does not entangle himself with the affairs of this world as he is serving. And Dean Taylor's book, Change of 
Change of Allegiance, I believe is the title of it. That was very real to him because when he became converted and started to embrace the concept of, of non-resistance and non-conformity, he was a soldier of the United States deployed in Germany. And it made sense to him because he said elections came and went in Germany and he hardly wasted time to read about it. It didn't really matter to him. Because he was in Germany for the express interest of, of representing the interest of the United States Army and what went on in Germany wasn't a big deal to him. So he was able to wrap his mind around this verse that said, Therefore, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So we're coming back to the 4th of July. How should we be responding to the patriotic and the political fervor around us? First of all, realize our allegiance is to our citizenship in heaven. That is our allegiance. We are thankful that we are placed in a nation where we have the religious freedoms that we do have. We are thankful for the many blessings that we enjoy here, although we do seem to be eroding away at a rather rapid speed. But not only are we called to not become entangled with the affairs of this world, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ as we live here. So we are to represent the interest of our primary country, where our citizenship lies, with fervor and with passion. So just as an ambassador is not only concerned with representing the interest of his home country, we as good soldiers should not only be committed to promote, should only be committed to promoting the interest of our kingdom. The interest of our kingdom is saving of souls, not of personal ease or prosperity. And see, our experience is very different than, than many of our spiritual forebears who have went on before us. We have not experienced persecutions. Persecution. We have not experienced that in a very real way. Yes, there may be some pushback. Yes, there may be some, some things that, that cause us to struggle at times. But John, Jesus said in John 15, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So Jesus said, Don't be surprised if you don't win the popularity contest if you're walking with me. If you are the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you. So expect some resistance if you're really representing Christ. Remember the word I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know him not that sent me. Timothy, excuse me, Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2 Timothy chapter 3 and says this, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience. Persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me, yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Are we living godly in Christ Jesus? So do we believe those scriptures? Or do we believe this? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endued by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the concept of government, that whatever form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, 
and to institute a new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as shall seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness. You know where that comes from, the Declaration of Independence, right? So which of those two do we really embrace subconsciously? <laughs> I'm afraid... I'm not saying it's a judgmental way. I'm just saying I'm afraid in a subconscious way this self-evident truths of created equal inalienable rights has crept into our thought process more than we realize. And as you worked your way through the tangled web of the past year and the different responses to things that came down the path, the idea of inalienable rights seemed to be very near the surface. And I find it interesting as I look at this writing and realize it was written by men who had just thrown off the restraint of the King of England. And they seemed to, to make uh, an attempt to justify what had taken place because they said, if any form of government comes destructive to these ends, is the right of people to alter or abolish it and institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So they're saying, we really did what we needed to do for our own good well-being. But on January 6th, there were some people that decided to try that again. <laughs> and it wasn't received well. <laughs> so you see, we can... Uh, we can, uh, it's just funny now they're trying these people, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, but it's just interesting to me. They're trying these people that, that took this seriously and tried to do something about it from their perspective, and they're trying them as breakers of the law. So, yeah, be careful what we write. It come back to haunt us. So, anyway, I believe it was the election year where maybe George W. Bush was running against, I forget who he was, about year 2000. Dean Taylor was on his way home from work and he stopped at a pretzel stand in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania and to get some pretzels to take home to his family. And he was surprised to find, he was new, he was just coming into this Anabaptist thing. And he was surprised to find there at the, uh, at the Horse and Buggy Mennonite stand uh, registration forms for voting and also a little pamphlet to tell you which party you should be voting for. So he asked the young lady there working, young girl, why? And she said, oh, sir, things have gotten so bad, we just have to get involved. And he found that interesting. He said, well, if you study history, you find that's never worked out real well. And he bought his pretzels and, and went on home. Um, you see, religious nationalism is actually idolatry if you're a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a change of allegiance in the wrong direction. Um, nationalism and political fervor. And I believe what has happened to us is we've had so many generations of, of freedom. We have thrived for several generations as a prosperous upper middle class Americans and now feel that lifestyle and religious freedom we enjoy is an inalienable right that we must fight to maintain instead of recognizing the sovereignty of God over the nations of this earth. And that's exactly where the German people were in 1940. 
read you two letters that they wrote to Chancellor Adolf Hitler Berlin. The Conference of East-West Persian Mennonites assembled and can't say the long word, the free state of Danzig, feel deep gratitude for the powerful revival God has given our nation through your energy and promises joyful cooperation, the upbuilding of our fatherland through the power of the gospel, faithful to the motto, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Another letter to Hitler from the German Mennonites who moved to Paraguay. With greatest excitement, we German Mennonites of Paraguay follow the events of our beloved motherland and experience in spirit the national revolution of the German people. We are happy that in Germany, after a long time, a government that openly and freely possesses, professes God as creator stands at the head of the nation. With special sympathy, we hear that the current government takes seriously the realization of Christian principles in social, economic, and cultural life and especially emphasizes the protection of the family. Hitler was a busy man, but he took time to write back and said, For your loyalty and your readiness to cooperate with the upbuilding of the German nation expressed in your letter to me, I express my sincere thanks. Mennonite letters to and from Chancellor Adolf Hitler, 19, late 30s, early 40s. You know, the sad part is by the time that, uh, so that was in the 40s and Dean Taylor was serving there in the army in the 90s and he became a Christian and began to seek out churches to go and and uh, attend to worship while he was working on his getting his discharge. And I don't know that he found any non-resistant or non-conformed churches still in the country. So the, the, the challenging thing for us to think about is when we turn to politics to preserve religious freedom, in essence, we're going to lose everything of value in the process, or at least most things of value in the process. Because when we align with government, and now, I'll say this, the Mennonites weren't the only ones. The other Christians there, they seen, they seen the threat of communism coming in. They seen the Nazi regime as, as a way to push that back. And Christians as a whole embraced this, not just the Mennonites. But the Mennonites did write letters of apology then after they seen what had happened. But there was, there was a lot of back and forth. There were older there were older Mennonite men in Germany that, that pushed back as hard as they could on this, but the younger ones said, no, uh, this, is, this is what we have to support to preserve our Christianity here in, in the motherland. And see, the danger was they viewed Germany as the, as the motherland of, of the home of their Christian experience, and they wanted to preserve that. And uh, just a few thoughts from that. An allegiance to a perceived earthly Christian nation blinded their understanding of the scriptures. A man who claimed to be opposed to the evils of communism, who claimed to honor God, became the focus of their hope instead of Jesus Christ. We should never put our hope in mankind, especially when their words and lifestyles do not match up. What did the early Anabaptists have to say about this? The early Anabaptists wrote, and that's in the book Anabaptist Outline, the early Anabaptists wrote that they believed that we relate to government in the same way, whether it be benevolent or whether it be tyrannous. I found that interesting and challenging. The early Anabaptists looked at this thing of political fervor and relation church and state, and they said whether a government be benevolent or whether they're a bunch of tyrants, we're going to relate to them in the same way. Why? 
Because as governments move from party to party, even at their very best, they will never come anywhere close to the standard of Jesus Christ for his followers. So when a kingdom believer enters into the fray of politics, he will always take a huge step down from the perfection of Christ. And you'll find that in the Slate Confession in the writings of the Anabaptists. They talk about the perfection of Christ. And they understood that, that when a kingdom believer enters into the fray of this world's politics, he will always take a huge step down from the from the perfection of Christ, even in the best scenario of a, of a uh, worldly government. So what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of scripture that tells us how we are to relate to earthly governments with respect. And we talked about that, uh, was it Brother Keith maybe that shared at conference uh, from Peter that talked about that we are to respect those. It talks about the evil people, those who despise authority and, and speak evil of, of dignitaries and all of that. We should not do that. We should not do that. In fact, when Paul was writing to us in the New Testament how to relate to, to government entities, uh, he no doubt was living in somewhat uh, of an understanding of what Nero would do to him had he been given the opportunity. So what are we to do? There's that, there's that tension between respect but not getting drawn in to the workings of it. First, we need to die daily to self and to follow Christ. Luke 9.22, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and raised on the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be a castaway? So there's the foundation. Walking with Christ. The second, to give our lives in service to others. John the Baptist, forerunner of Christ, the man who said, Behold the Lamb, taketh away the Son of the world, finds himself in prison. And he called two of his disciples to come in to him, and he sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or we look for another? When the men were coming to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us, saying, Art thou that should come, or we look for another? In that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and evil spirits, and to many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering them said, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. So these disciples came. They asked Jesus a question. The scripture would indicate that he didn't answer right away. He continued his ministry of meeting needs. And then he speaks to John's two disciples and says, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus said, I'm simply serving humanity. And that's evidence enough that I'm the Savior. Serving humanity. And he went on to say, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. We could drop all the way down to Matthew 25. And it's the story of the Son of Man coming in his glory with his holy angels. And all nations will be gathered before him. He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. 
He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them in his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Maybe we're oversimplifying the reality of what it means to be a Christian here, but I don't think we are. We die to self. I, I just see two, two directives for our lives. We die to self daily and follow Christ, and we give our lives in service for a fellow man with the purpose of sharing the gospel with them, and we'll, we'll get to that in our conclusion. And I find it interesting here that Jesus invited them in, and he told them all that they had done, and they answered him saying, Lord, when did we see you hunger? When did we feed you? When did we give you drink? When did we see you a stranger? When did we take you in? It, it looks to me like the Spirit of God so led in these people's lives that they naturally served humanity around them and didn't even think about what they were doing. It was the natural outflow of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I'm not saying they didn't realize what they were doing, but they weren't doing it as meritorious good works to try to get into heaven. It was something that flowed out of their lives. And I'd like to challenge us with that tonight. I believe that needs to be our focus in this world in which we live. Back to the notes specifically for tonight. A number of things I'd like to share with us yet in closing. What are the distinctive marks of being citizens of God's kingdom and children of faith? Number one, God's nation has no borders and no prejudice. No borders and no prejudice. And we ought to be able to identify with that if you read the news right now. There's a lot of focus on a border right now, right, between Mexico and the United States. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, we are one. Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And just for illustration, I'd like for us to think a bit about the, the border between Mexico and the United States. What would Christ have us to be doing in that setting? Building a wall? Throwing people back in the river when they come across? What would we be doing? Another question, does Satan have any agents down there at work? There are human traffickers down there. There are drug dealers down there. There's Satan has plenty of agents down there involved in that chaos. And I'm blessed to read a story some time ago about a group of churches in the, in the West that welcomed what is going on because they said we had a time period in the previous three or four years where there's so few people coming across that our, that our outreach ministry was suffering a bit. They're going down there with food and raiment and the gospel. 
because they recognized that being citizens of God's kingdom, of the nation of faith from Abraham, has no borders, has no prejudice. Every human being is viewed as a lost soul that needs Jesus Christ. But if we're caught up in nationalism and we're worried about the social security system and et cetera, et cetera, we're wondering how this will overwhelm me and how's it going to affect me, and we can lose that sight. We can lose that vision of, of how it is. Second, the people of God's nation are called to be content. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing to this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Food, clothing, and salvation through Jesus Christ. Three things that all humanity needs. Not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of the lilies of the field, right? So why do you worry about these things? Jesus asked the question, why are you worrying about these things? God will take care of you. God will meet your needs. And we can go to Matthew. Let's do that. Let's go to Matthew 6. Drop in at verse 19. Lay not up cells for your lay not up treasures, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, for moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up treasures yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth does not nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where a treasure is, there will our heart be. Relating to the world around us and the festivities of the 4th of July. Verses 24 through 34. No man can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other, else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For Therefore I say unto you, take no thought of your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, yet for your body what you shall put on, for is not life more than meat and the body more than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither they reap, neither gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better... Than they. And it goes on, you know, the rest of that story or how that lays out. A group of men came to John the Baptist. I believe there were soldiers and tax collectors and average people. And they came to John the Baptist one day and they said, What must we do to be saved or to enter into your work? Or to, to be blessed. I'm not exactly sure they ask. And I find it interesting. I was meditating on this on the way up the road again this evening. He said, well, if you have two coats and you know someone that doesn't have one, give him one of your coats. And I thought, they came and asked him that question. They were probably, all right, so they, he's the forerunner. He may be the Christ. What's getting ready to happen? Should we be getting a new chariot to travel with the king or lose weight so we can run in front of the king and yell, bow the knee, or what great things should we be doing to be part of this kingdom that he said is coming? And he said, well, if you have two coats, take and give one of them to somebody that doesn't have a coat. And if you have more food than you need, he said meat, well, take some of it and give it to somebody that don't have meat. And if you're a tax collector, just don't take any more from the people than what you're supposed to. And to the soldier, he says, do violence to no man and be content with your wages. Wouldn't be a very good soldier if he didn't do any violence when someone was attacking the king. 
<laughs> and I wonder if those people went home and thought, that's a very simplistic way to be part of a new kingdom that's getting ready to start. But it's not that difficult, is it? <laughs> We're here to serve, make sure our fellow man has his basic needs covered, and share with him the plan of salvation. And if we choose not to do that, uh, for we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brother, and he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whosoever hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth, and hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. And last but not least, the people of God's nation do not become involved in the political affairs of this world. And I've already looked at that passage and the other uh, scriptures. An early Christian in Rome wrote to the emperor as Christians were being slaughtered and, and persecuted. And he wrote an interesting letter. I don't remember which one it was. And he said to the emperor, he said, it, basically said it's of your best interest to not persecute us. He said, we have potential to be your best citizens. We care for the poor. We serve others. We don't break the law. And we could be a real asset to you and your kingdom if you choose not to keep killing us off. So I'd like to leave us with that thought tonight. Could we write that same letter to our government and say, if you allow us to live out our beliefs, we can be a real asset to the country in which we live because we simply follow the principles of God. The world has changed through changed hearts and only Jesus Christ can change a heart. It's interesting. Jesus changed the world by changing a few hearts and having them go out and invite others to have changed hearts. Jesus didn't change the world by amassing an army that was larger than Rome's. So we are called to represent a nation without borders or prejudice and to focus on the needs of others and not ourselves. And that nation is an unstoppable force in the world. Am I a part of it? Because an army of surrendered people is a powerful force. We have a song.